0: Where can we debate today's big issues without getting attacked for speaking our minds? 1A provides a safe, smart place for tough conversations every weekday. And the Friday News Roundup breaks down the week's top stories. I'm Joshua Johnson. Check out the 1A podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. Amy Sedaris has made a career playing people who, I mean, I don't want to sound mean here, but people who are basically grotesque and weird. Jerry Blank from her show Strangers with Candy, who was a middle-aged high school student with an enormous overbite and weird highlights in her hair and very, very serious mom jeans. Or Mimi Kanassis, on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, who is a completely insane socialite type. But have you seen Amy Sedaris' new show? It's called At Home with Amy Sedaris. It's kind of a funhouse mirror version of a home cooking show. And for the first time, Amy Sedaris plays Amy Sedaris in most of the show, which is definitely not Amy Sedaris' comfort zone.
2: Because I have more fun playing characters, and I like playing ugly characters. My favorite episode, one of my favorite episodes, is Entertaining for Peanuts, where it's cooking on a budget. And I say that I do my own hair and makeup, and I look really good, really scary. I look horrible. And it opens up that way, and I could just look at myself forever. And then I get to play a hobo, and this southern woman, Patty Hogg, and this other character I play with my nose taped up. And then I also like the holiday episode, because I I lose a tooth, and I get to have a blacked-out mouth. (laughs)
0: It's Bullseye Coming up, more on At Home with Amy Sedaris She'll tell me about how the show came together We'll talk about crafts And we'll talk about what it's like to be on a television set With an enormous and very dead monkfish
2: I know, it was gigantic It was like, and they were sitting out there for a while The set did not smell pretty that day
0: Plus, nicer stuff, like her bunny rabbit.
2: I have Tina. She's seven pounds. She's a deformed paw. She's aggressive. And she's just as charming as can be. And I've had her for three years.
0: (laughs) Then, Paul Reiser. He's created a brand new sitcom centered around Johnny Carson. Paul was a guest on The Tonight Show dozens of times. And you know all those great things that you hear about Johnny Carson as a comedian? Paul says they're all true. He knew when to help, how to help. Sometimes he'd help by
3: jumping in. Sometimes he'd help by staying back. There were times that I looked at a thing. And I, I saw him, re- very subtly reposition his body so that his hand would be close to mine because he knew I needed to touch him for a, for the joke. It's like, you know, whatever it was.
0: He was there. Then, who needs who needs donuts? You need who needs donuts. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Amy Sedaris. She's honestly, and I am making an editorial judgment here, one of the funniest human beings in the world. You probably saw her when she starred on Comedy Central's strange show, Strangers with Candy. She played a 46-year-old high school freshman. Among other things, it helped kick off the career of Stephen Colbert. She's been a regular on The Late Show with him and with Letterman before him. She's had recurring roles on a bunch of other stuff, too. She was on Sex in the City. Lately, you've seen her as Mimi Canassis on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You've heard her as Princess Carolyn in Bojack Horseman. Sedaris is also an expert when it comes to stuff you might learn in home ec class. Decorating pine cones, cooking casseroles, that kind of thing. She's a big home entertainer, too. So for the longest time, she's had this idea make a show starring her where she bakes barbecues and, you know, makes sailboats out of baked potatoes, except instead of the regular version of that show, it's the Amy Sedaris version of that show. So the potatoes are covered in glue. The barbecue is on the 11th hole at a golf course. And the thing that she's baking is a giant heap of raw ground beef because the oven on set doesn't actually work this year. The show became a reality. Finally, it's called "At Home with Amy Sedaris." It's on True TV. It's just as funny as it sounds. Amy plays a kind of amped-up version of herself, and she's visited by folks like Paul Giamatti, Stephen Colbert. This show's—it's a delight. Here's a little bit from the second episode. She's talking about entertaining for one.
2: Anybody who knows me knows I never wear fitted jeans. I was a girl scout for way too long, and I'm involved heavily in the House Rabbit Society but they also know I love to entertain. And what does entertaining mean? I believe it's the giving of myself to you, from me, for us. And when it comes to hospitality, I've settled on a certain way of doing things. It might not be the most proper way, or the most traditional, or even the most legal, but it works for me. And now, it can work for you. Now, if there's one thing I've learned, you can't entertain without guests. And when it comes to guests, I'm my favorite. I like the sound of my voice, I dress appropriately, and I always show up with something in my hand. That's why tonight I'm cooking for one. And I'm not alone at being alone, because so many of you people out there dine solo, or, as the French say, el fresco.
0: (laughs) Amy Sedaris, welcome back to the show. Thank you for doing this.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: I was laughing not only because the lines were uh, funny, but also because I was remembering that uh, I, I believe in that scene you are manhandling a meatloaf that is com- entirely uncooked. Yes. Just plunging your fingers into the ground meat.
2: <laughs> we well, have to do that to make meatloaf.
0: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although for for some reason on the program, it goes into the oven uncooked and comes out of the oven uncooked.
2: Yeah, we didn't have a working oven on set.
0: (laughs) Um, Why did you do this show now? I feel like you probably could have pitched this show 10 years ago as well as you could have now. So what was different
2: I did pitch the, I mean, I've been trying to actively get this show up since early 2000, and I always backed away from it. I'd get really close to it, and then I'd go, I, I just kept putting it off and putting it off. But, you know, you know, a show like this has been stewing really since I've been 10 or 11. And then I did the cookbooks. You know, it's just, you know, like having that project that you can always think about in your head. And I think it's like making a really good soup or a really good stew, and it just takes a long time if you really want it to be good. And I just came. I think my sister passed away, and I I just, I, I don't know. That's pretty much the timing of it. And I just decided, you know, it was time for me to do it. And I actively just put one foot in front of the other and just said, I'm going to do it now. Now it's time to do it. I've already done the books. They speak for itself. Um, and I just thought, let's let's just do it right now. Why
0: do you think you backed away before?
2: Because then I would... You know, it's. I just wasn't done thinking about it. I know it sounds like a pothead mentality right there, but you know, but it wasn't. I just wanted to keep thinking about it and thinking about it. And I, you know, so so many of my friends heard me talk about it since 2001. I could see their eyes glaze over. Like, really, you're still talking about this show? When are you going to do it, Amy? So it was kind of embarrassing too that I always talked about it but never did anything about it. But now I'm going to miss it in my head. Now I'm going to have to come up with something new.
0: Do you like to watch that kind of show? I mean, do you like to watch a a Martha Stewart or a, I don't know. For some reason, the example that comes into my head is the frugal gourmet.
2: Yeah, love. Yeah, he's a big inspiration, and I like shows like that. I grew up with those shows. Everything that you know, I, I've been saying, from Red Skeleton to Lawrence Welk, and to you know, Two Fat Ladies and Frugal Gourmet and and um, uh, Galloping Gourmet and Julia Childs, and I, I mean, those were all big inspirations. PTL with Tammy Faye Baker. She had a cooking segment on her show, and um, we had two local hospitality shows growing up: At Home with Peggy Mann and the Betty Elliott Show. And that's where the seed was planted when I was a young when I was. Was Ten or eleven, and my mom would watch it, and I would be like, "Oh, I'm going to do that show when I grow up."
0: What are the things that you wanted to uh, uh, to put on set to make it make your show uh, the visual feast that you were looking for?
2: Well, I wanted a lot of art. I went to a lot of artists, and they contributed artwork. And a lot of my family members did a lot of the artwork you see hanging up. And uh, the Green Vase, who makes paper flowers, and my sister Gretchen, who made paper flowers, and um, Jean Royer was this a um, uh, guy who made furniture. I don't know what year it was, but, um, I have a book of his furniture, and uh Jason Singleton, who did the sets and made replicas of some of his furniture, and John Darian contributed furniture, so it's like everybody I love you know just like helped me bring that set to what it was. Adam Selman, a good friend of mine, made all the curtains and um, we helped me with the color schemes. So I was always, you know, every detail. There wasn't anything on set that, you know, wasn't, like, considered. It like, how to have a special home. And that's how my apartment is. It's lo- loosely based on my apartment.
0: It seems like in your apartment you take a lot of pride in the idea that every single thing that's in there is a story, is something that has actual meaning to you.
2: Yes. Like, Maud Lewis is this— um painter from the... Uh, she's from Canada. And I get this... The only magazine I get in the mail is called World of Interiors, and I she that's where I read about Maude Lewis. And so we do a little... Um, she had flowers all over her house and tulips on her windows, and her hands looked like ginger. You know, she had... Her hands were, like, um, messed up, deformed. And um, so we did that in the craft room, and I just love... I love the craft room so much on the set, and I just look at that wall, and I think of Maude Lewis, and um, I just... You know, I love there's a little bit of everything I love on that set, so I could just look around and just think about stuff.
0: (laughs) Do you have in-and-out rules? I mean, uh, I know that I'm at the flea market every weekend, and I sort of had to start a vintage store so that I could buy things. Uh Because otherwise I would just be putting things on top of other things, and you become a, a, a sad hoarder really fast. I know. So, like, you have to have a way... There has to be an indoor and an outdoor, you know what I mean
2: um yeah i I well i kind- I still go to the flea market and look for things, but I don't go as much as I used to just because I don't want anything else, but if I buy like a pair of shoes and I say, I have to get rid of a pair of shoes, like I do keep that happening or, you know, I have, I still have that 25 cent sale in my apartment where I have people over and I get, you know, sell stuff I'm getting rid of for a quarter because that's what it costs to do my laundry. I need, I collect, you know, I have to have a quarter. Um So I sell stuff for 25 cents.
0: I remember, I feel like the last time you were on the show, maybe you still, you had like a permanent, uh permanent sale installation in your home. Like it was like a table or something.
2: Yeah. I still do that.
0: So. Okay. Well, that's good. It's a that's good way excellent. to get rid of things. Yep. Yeah. Does it work?
2: Yes, I usually cater to the group of people I have over, so I know they're going to go for something. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I do cater it.
0: I think one of the late motifs of your life and career is that as you have become more and more successful as an actress and comedian, you have maintained your passion for money-making side hustles.
2: I know. When am I going to grow out of that? (laughs) I always say that when I'm, you know, up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, making 500 lighters. I'm like, when am I going to stop doing this?
0: What is the satisfaction of it for you?
2: I like selling stuff. I like the transaction. I like having a table between me and an audience and having people come and buy stuff from me. And that comes from Junior Achievements and Girl Scouts. It comes from me collecting Coke bottles and going door-to-door from Kool-Aid stands. And it's just, I like the idea of having allowance money. And I like the idea of it being under the table and I made something and someone bought it. You know, it's that simple. I just, I, and I just, it's just in my blood.
0: Were there projects that you really it wanted to get onto this show because you love them as projects rather than because they were great setups for comedy?
2: Every craft on the show I wanted to get on. My favorite craft is the one in some marshmallow stars that I make where you roll toothpicks and glitter and you insert them into a marshmallow and then you hang it on fishing wire. And I just can stare at that forever. Like, there isn't anything on the show... Um, I just loved everything I made on the show and I was passionate about it the only thing I make on the show that I've never made before is paella but then I didn't really make it you know the uh, food stylist made it but I I didn't like the idea of saying I made something that I never even tried before but but it looked really pretty so I was okay with it
0: tell me a little bit about what's your favorite thing uh, that you make on the show to cook actually yourself at home
2: um, well, I do make—I make this birthday cake with Nick Kroll that um, I, I make. It's it's an angel food cake, and you uh, fill it with ice cream, and you cover it with whipped cream. And that's a really good ice cream cake uh, to make, uh, especially for kids, too, because they can help make it. And then I also make a baked Alaska. That was my favorite cake growing up. Uh, it's another ice cream cake. Um, and Spanakopita.
0: Now, you mentioned Spanakopita. I feel like Spanakopita is a true passion of yours.
2: Yeah, I make that all the time. I really can make it with my eyes closed, probably. it's I, we all, Everyone in my family makes Spanakopita, and it's easy. And it's easy to impress people with phyllo because they're so intimidated by it. They don't know what to do with it. It's flaky. But um, we all have it down in my family. So it's easy, and it's not, you know, it's just a good crowd pleaser.
0: Let's hear another clip from uh, At Home with Amy Sedaris. My guest is Amy Sedaris. Um She does all kinds of uh, home activities on the show, everything you might do in home ec class. And um, in this scene, she's talking about seafood and fish. And there is just a dizzying and frankly, slightly grotesque array of raw fish before her on uh, her kitchen counter.
2: The arctic char, there you go. Now this is the less attractive cousin to the salmon. Most people prefer salmon, but will settle for char, especially if it's the end of a night of heavy drinking and all the salmon has been ordered by the investment bankers. (laughs) The red snapper. Now, you know it's the red snapper because it's red, as you can see here. A workman-like fish known for its firm texture and abundance of mercury. Perfect if slowly poisoning a loved one is on the menu. Next up is the porgy. Now, this is perhaps the dumbest fish in the sea, easily fooled by the most simple of lures. So simple to catch, you can practically pull up to the pier in an unmarked van, slide open the door, and it'll jump right in. A real (laughs) dum-dum.
0: I feel like the monkfish is a visual gag that just depends on the fact that a, a monkfish is just really creepy looking.
2: I know. It was gigantic. It was like, and they were sitting out there for a while. The set did not smell pretty that day.
0: One of the things that I admire about your commitment to crafting, frankly, is that I always felt like, oh, I'm not any good at that kind of stuff. I could never do it. And I could never get enjoyment out of it because I'm no good at it. And very few of your crafts are technically impressive, <laughs>
2: I know, but I'm doing the best job I can.
0: Yeah, I'm not I've I really I I I want to be clear how sincere I am in your in my admiration <laughs> for you doing this. It's like but but I think like when you see somebody doing when you see Martha Stewart doing something, you know, part of what you're admiring is just like, "Oh my gosh, I could never do something like that. What a remarkable, incredible achievement." And Amy, you're mostly like making potholders and enjoying it. Yes. you know and they are nice potholders it's not that they're not perfectly lovely p- potholders they're just something that i could imagine a normal human being doing you know
2: right you can achieve this <laughs> right
0: <laughs> but like you must really i mean I, I imagine that you really get that kind of satisfaction out of a project that you can just kind of do and it'll and it'll come out kind of fun you know
2: well like going back to what you said earlier like when I watch shows like Barefoot Contessa or Martha. Usually they come out with some gadget or some big appliance, and I'm looking at it like, really? Where in my apartment can I put that lemon juicer? Like, where? And you're plugging it in, and it's taking up all your whole counter space. And I'm like, that makes me feel left out because I don't have any gadgets. I have a French bean Frencher. That's my gadget, you know. And I just, you do feel left out, or you're like, oh, I can't do that. You know, wow, that's amazing. Or you have to go to these funky, you know, specialty shops to get something and I'm just like no I mean I grew up in a household where you're like okay go cut off the vacuum hose and we can use that for something or go scrape the shavings off dad's expensive speakers and we can use that to make a beard for something I mean you're just in your house and you're <laughs> finding appliances and that's what I like or I like I'm drawn to naive crafts or like folk art because it's you know it's necessity and it's practical, and you're doing with what you have. You know, you can make a braided rug using pantyhose or, or tights. I mean, that's the family I grew up in, and it just makes it a lot more fun. And then you're like, wow, I never thought to use that pine cone for, you know, to put glitter on that pine cone or whatever it is. You know, it's it just makes it more um, creative, and you feel more like, you know, a mad scientist. I was—
0: I I wouldn't say I was surprised because you know it is sort of part of the premise of the show but I was really surprised a little bit to see you looking so much like you on the show. And you do characters. There are sort of there are sort of sketch segments where you are playing someone other than Amy Sedaris. But yes. in the bulk of the show you look like Amy Sedaris and I realized how little comedy I had seen you do. Without at least one weird prosthetic.
2: I know. It was hard for me. I didn't even have fake teeth made for myself. Well, I worried about that. I was like, oh, gosh, how am I going to play myself? But then once I started playing other characters, I was like, oh, I get it now. I'm going to be the boring one. I'm going to be the, you know, the one that all those characters would make fun of. So then it gave me, that's the hook that I went with. Um, but I, I did worry about that, and it was a challenge for me to play myself and to look like myself. But, I, you know, I, I was like, well, I also get to play other characters. So it was okay. You know, Because I have more fun playing characters, and I like playing ugly characters. My favorite episode, one of my favorite episodes, is Entertaining for Peanuts, where it's cooking on a budget. And I say that I do my own hair and makeup, and I look really good, really scary. <laughs> I look hor- horrible. And it opens up that way, and I could just look at myself forever. And then I get to play a hobo and this southern woman, Patty Hogg, and this other character I play with my nose taped up. So I, I just like that episode because I-, I look so different in every scene. And then I also like the holiday episode because I, I, I lose a tooth and I get to have a blacked-out mouth.
0: <laughs> do you prefer to look at yourself on camera? I mean, you know, when you're making your own show, you have to look at yourself on camera to some extent. Um, do you prefer to look at yourself with a blacked-out uh, blacked tooth and, uh, and a crazy wig than yes. to look at yourself in a pretty dress looking yes. nice?
2: Absolutely. I can't. I mean, I can look at myself and be like, oh, you know, hair did great job, makeup did a great job, the wardrobe's perfect, you know, oh, those shoes. You know, I just look at everything and look at the set and look around, but it, it's harder. And But when I'm in character for something or I do have a prosthetic or something, then it's just like, wow, because I can tell I'm having a lot more fun.
0: We have even more with the great Amy Sedaris after the break. Still to come, can you name the two Girl Scout merit badges Amy didn't get Until her 30s? Probably not. Keep listening. You'll find out. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye.
1: Hi, this is Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together we bring you Wow in the World.
2: NPR's podcast for curious kids and the grown-ups.
1: And we're back with all new episodes.
2: New scientific adventures both in and out of this world.
1: Find Wow in the World on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well in the world.
0: This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Amy Sedaris. She created and stars in her brand new show At Home with Amy Sedaris. It's on True TV right now. I I want to play this clip of you on uh Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is one of my favorite shows and you're a, you're a regular uh you make regular guest appearances on the show. Yes. Your character's name is Mimi Canassis. She's best friends with Jane Krakowski's character, Jacqueline. And Jane Krakowski actually makes an appearance on your show. She um, sure does, as well. And um, in this clip, you are—you've gone to a party with Jacqueline as a sort of wing woman, and you've got on a white wig because you are pretending to be Sia, the pop star with no face. Right. Um, and it, it doesn't work out how you imagined.
2: I can't hear anything, so I'm going to assume that was my cue. Also, iTunes suspended my account, so I'm going to have to wing it. (laughs) Chandelier! Fancy roof lap! Chandelier! 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 Wow. (laughs) It
0: must be fun to go on Kimmy Schmidt, which is... uh, I don't want to call it an unhinged show. It's pretty hinged, but it's it's very silly and very high energy to begin with. Mm-hmm. and your mandate is kind of to jump in there and and really get things going
2: yeah i love i love it i have I love my look I look like a little fox because I have a little face <laughs> and this huge country club hairstyle and I get to wear designer clothing um and it's just you know and I'm just so weak you know next to Jane you know just like just desperate for her attention, so you already have an internal game to play, which is always makes it fun. Um, and everyone's just really nice and funny on that show. It's it's all. Uh, yeah, you walk in, you get laughs, and you leave. It's perfect.
0: Do you have any bunnies in your life right now?
2: I have Tina. She's seven pounds. She has a deformed paw. She's aggressive. And she's just as charming as can be. And she, I've had her for three years.
0: What kind of aggressive is she?
2: She growls and grunts a little bit. She's knocked me down in the hallway. Uh <laughs>
0: How did you end up with bunnies particularly? Because you've been a bunny advocate for quite a long time.
2: I have. I was in the nineties and I saw a little um a little uh bunny in a window and I just impulsively bought it. And uh her name I named her Tattletail and she was a little dwarf bunny and uh Silver Martin. And I was doing everything wrong. And then I met this woman who came to my house to do an interview. And she was in charge of the House Rabbit Society, Mary Cotter. And um, she said, oh, no, you know, you're doing everything wrong. And she trained me. And now um, I have a badge. And I can go into people's homes. And I can educate them on rabbit care. And any excuse to go into anyone's home. I mean, I'm right there. I love to go into other people's apartments. And I've rescued a couple bunnies. And I go to the conference every, every fall in New Rochelle. And um, I don't know. I'm just really into it. And then I got, and then I had that bunny for seven years. And then I got another bunny, and I had her for twelve years. And now I've had Tina for three.
0: I am. Ima- I'm imagining you right now in a, what amounts to a kind of police procedural, <laughs> like a Law and Order spinoff, where it's you banging on apartment doors in New York, <laughs>
2: That's and funny. someone's
0: eye going up to the peephole, and you flashing your Bunny
2: badge. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, I've seen some crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Wait, what kind of crazy bunny stuff have you seen?
2: Well, I saw what. I mean, I I don't know what I can say on NPR. Just people's apartments. Forget the rabbits. I'm more interested in the I'm more interested in the houses and the people.
0: Did you have that sense of identity that some people develop in high school? Like, oh yeah, I'm a I'm a theater kid, or. I'm I'm a band person or I'm a football player or I'm a geek in the A.V. club.
2: <laughs> I love the A.V. club. They were always there hooking up stuff. It was the best when they would come into the classroom to hook up the screen or something <laughs> like a weirdos. Um, I don't know what I, you know, I, I was, I don't know. I was in Girl Scouts up to my senior year of high school. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a geek. I don't know.
0: Did you learn to do any uh, cool Girl Scout stuff? Like, do they, like, teach you knots or anything?
2: I don't remember knots, but a lot of the crafts I do on the show I learned in Girl Scouts, you know, and we would go camping. And, you know, you had to earn a badge, and I liked earning badges, and I liked – I was always sold the most cookies, always. Um and uh, I, I just – I don't know. I, there's something I just liked about Girl Scouts, you know, getting together with a bunch of girls and doing crafts and, you know, singing songs. And I loved uniforms. I still love uniforms. Um, and I still have my sashes and everything. And when I moved to New York, I went to the Girl Scout Council on 23rd, and I introduced myself, and I said, there are two badges I didn't get, and is it too late for me to earn them? And they said no, and they mailed them to me in the, in the, in the mail.
0: What were the two that you hadn't
2: gotten? Sign of the Star and Sign of the Arrow. I think that's what it was. What were they for? Yeah, like, I don't remember by heart, but one might say, you know, you have to get up in front of an audience and talk about something you love a lot. You know what I mean? Like little things like easy stuff. I'm like, look it, I'm I'm 35. I've done this. I've done that. I did that. You know what I mean? I was just like, maybe I didn't do it back in the 70s, but I did it. I mean, look, you know, so I proved it to them and I got the badges.
0: Well, Amy Sedaris, I'm hereby issuing you the uh, bullseye badge. Oh wow! In honor of in in honor of being my favorite, so oh, that's so so nice.
2: I really enjoyed talking to you, and um, yeah, really enjoyed talking to you. Nice catching up after all these years.
0: Amy Sedaris, her new show "At Home with Amy Sedaris" is on True TV every Tuesday evening at ten thirty, nine thirty Central. Also, definitely go on YouTube and watch that scene where uh, Amy is Mimi Kenassis on Kimmy Schmidt, and then she kicks off the shoes on her way onto the rug. It is one of the greatest things ever. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Paul Reiser. He's a legendary stand-up comedian. Alongside Helen Hunt, he starred on the sitcom Mad About You, which he also co-created. He's been acting a lot lately. He's on Amazon's Red Oaks, He's on the second season of Stranger Things. He was also in Whiplash. He's also the creator of a brand new TV show. It's called There's Johnny, and it's premiering this week on Hulu. The show takes place in the early 70s, and it's set behind the scenes at Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. It follows Andy, played by Ian Nelson, as a fresh off the bus kid who gets a job on the show. In this clip from the pilot, Andy decides to write a letter to Johnny Carson asking for an autographed photo for his parents, and he kind of gets caught up in the spirit, and he also asks for a job. He gets the autographed photo back and a letter that he thinks is an invitation to come work on the show. So just like anyone would, he packs his bags, kisses his parents goodbye, and hops the bus from Nebraska to Los Angeles.
1: Can I help? Tonight Show, please. You want to see the Tonight Show? Yes, sir. I have this letter here. you know what time it is? Sure. It's, it's 5 to 11. <laughs> right. Right. It's 11 o'clock at night. Yes. Yes! Oh, well, I know the show doesn't start till 11.30, but I figured I would get here a little <laughs> bit early. Are you yanking my chain? Am I what? The show starts at 11.30 on television. Right. They don't make it at 11.30. They make it at 5.30. So there's nobody here but me and you, and maybe a raccoon.
0: Fall rides are welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you. You appeared on the Tonight Show in the in a polyester suit. At least it looked like your first time around. Right, now you're hurting me. You're hurting me with the fashion.
3: <laughs> uh, was it a polyester? It, there might have been some polyester involved. Uh, yes, I was. Once in a while, somebody will post that or I'll come across that clip and and I cringe because it's I look like I'm seven years old and my style is so... Not only is it so long ago that my style has changed, but on that night, it's the biggest thing in the world for a young comic to get on The Tonight Show. And I think I was so deliberately slowing myself down to not race that I'm almost like running... You know, like I'm stuck in maple syrup. It was so slow, I went, man, I was either uh, in some alternate universe, or I was wildly overcompensating, but, uh, yeah, uh, I like to think we're funnier now.
1: Let's take a listen. Oh, no,
3: really? Why?
1: I was visiting my parents recently. Do you know my folks? No. All right. My, my father, this is absolutely true. My father is, is, he has a new hobby now. He's got a winter hobby that he enjoys it's called walking around the house and shutting off the heat for no reason. Uh, the man shuts off, he, it's freezing, but see, he really believes that if he cuts down his oil bills, then starting tomorrow, America's gonna stop importing from the Middle East. You know, it's a great sentiment, it's a nice responsibility. I just, I don't know if one person is gonna turn around the economy, you know. I don't think the prince of Saudi Arabia is up in his office going, well, I
0: don't believe this.
1: It's that same guy in New Jersey again. <laughs> This is unbelievable.
0: Wow. I feel like for an entire generation or actually multiple generations of comics, Johnny Carson was like withholding comedy dad. Like there's this, he has this quality, a very rare quality for a broadcaster of being both uh being both withholding and warm at the same time. I never found him withholding. It, it, it's funny. I I did it a lot.
3: I, I, I think it was something like 25 times from like 80. Uh, well, the first time I did that was 82. And then I didn't do it for a while till 86 to 90. And then somewhere in there, he just took a shine to me. And I was on seemingly pretty often, like every three months or so, which is a lot. And uh, the first time I did stand-up. But the next, the second, and then from then on, I only uh, sat on the couch and did material. So it was a different kind of vibe. You didn't have to quite perform it. And the great advantage to that is you're playing tennis with Johnny. So you hit a stumbling block. You know, he asks a question. He would he would, he would would help you along. And part of what made him so singularly uh, great at that and really set the gold standard, he knew when to help, how to help. Sometimes he'd help by jumping in. Sometimes he'd help by staying back. There were times that I looked at a thing, I, I saw him re, very subtly reposition his body so that his hand would be close to mine because he knew I needed to touch him for a, for the joke. It's like, you know whatever it was. He was there.
0: I feel like the difference that I hear in the way that people talk about going on late night um, in the twenty five years since Johnny Carson retired, um, and before that, is that you know with the with the possible exception of Letterman to some extent, um, I would say that. You know, when I when I talk to a comic oh, the first time I went on The Tonight Show uh, with Leno or whatever, I did or Fallon. I, I went on, I did well, it was great. When you hear people talk about going on uh, The Tonight Show with Carson, certainly the stakes are higher because there's less on television and everyone watched the show and it was the only outlet for comedy in the world, basically. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. that kind of comedy in the Absolutely. world. But But the difference is those people always seem to talk about Johnny Carson in terms of their goal was whether Johnny Carson liked it. Like, (laughs) that is the rest of the fact that Uh, tens of millions of people are watching at home or there's an audience in the studio. Like, people seem to care, did Johnny like it? Yeah, it's, I'll
3: tell you, one of the uh, great joys of doing this uh, show that we just did for Hulu, uh, There's Johnny, is uh good work it was a it was always
0: always say the title
3: always say the title but there is such a deep well of affection for johnny carson um and a lot of it i think is because it's been a while and so we miss him it's all the more so and but women men old you know and there was there was just there was a fondness and he was comforting
0: speaking of the absence of irony I have a clip of... Is it ironic? ...you on oh, The Tonight Show. You're killing me
3: now. This is the late 80s. Um, <sighs> and... I don't like any... This is like pulling up high school pictures. Like, oh, man, look at that shirt.
0: Well, you're going to be excited to hear that you're talking about airplane travel. Um, oh, I think this is the bit I was referencing. Let me hear it. Uh, it's, it's you being stuck on a plane next to a, a too talkative passenger.
1: I get stymied by simple questions. The guy says to me, he, just, he says, is it going to rain today? And I think, like, like, I should know that. And I yeah. feel bad that I don't know that. I said, well, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Why don't you ask somebody else? Like, wouldn't he be scared if I did know? Wouldn't that be frightening? Yeah. You're sitting next to the guy who knows when it rains?
3: <laughs> it's like, yeah, 3.30 to quarter to four. Keep it to yourself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and by the way, that car trip you're taking next week, don't do it. You know, <laughs> I just feel crazy about you, you know. And then, uh, there, I mean, you, see, there are people who can do it. You can, anybody can sit here.
3: Uh, no, I'm not particularly good when on a, on a plane with strangers, yeah? no. Well, you get trapped in that nothing
1: conversation. Exactly. but it's the a his... great day to fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you yeah. know, good day. Uh-huh. But these are the same kind of people who I think, just because you're sitting next to each other, you know, you should be friends. This is the same people who on the road will honk their horn because they have the same car, you know? That's like, <laughs> like that's a base of a very solid friendship. <laughs> you're driving, around, hey, Chevy, Chevy.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> I
0: like that. What is that? Thirty years ago, almost. Um, you are already building chunks of your act around not wanting to make friends with people. Well, here's the thing that that <laughs> um that
3: chills me a little bit. When I look at old clips, I go, "I'm doing the same the same things." Irritate me, and and I was like, oh, I'm, I was doing a bit about technology, and I I found a bit. Uh, the first time I got a computer, I thought, well, I'm still doing computer bits, but it's different. But I haven't really become any more comfortable. And yes, people, I don't like people talking to me. Yes, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm nothing if not consistent. I I uh, the things that bother me. I it it, it uh, amuses me to see that I'm. Yes, that early
0: on, I already didn't enjoy people. I like that you. You know, I feel like <laughs> I it, like you. Don't get me wrong. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Paul. Um, and I like you and your new show. There's Johnny on, on who? Hulu. Yeah. Uh, I. I mean, I feel like uh, <laughs> Mad About You was, in a way, about the dance of irritation in the context of loving romance. Yeah. Uh, the Paul Reiser show was about the dance of irritation in. The kind of ad hoc friendships that <laughs> yes. parenthood drives you into. Yes. God you bless know. you for
3: having seen that show, because uh, fourteen people did. Well, I'll, um,
0: wa- I'll watch anything with uh, my favorite comic actor in it, Andy Daly. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, but uh, yeah. The, you know,
3: to me, the struggle and Mad About You was certainly about the struggle, and yes, find the irritation. You know, somebody years ago said, you know, whatever, you know all the uh, take my wife please jokes and all that whole generation nobody has a joke that starts my wife is such a good cook you know it's just not going to be funny Uh, so comedy by definition is going to be about the irritants and the friction but mad about you is very clearly from the outset aiming higher it's like this is a couple who really wants to get this right and that was that's sort of the prerequisite for a relationship and that's you know, what you can never lose sight of because it will get bumpy and it will get in you are two different people and you try and become as one, but you're never quite as one. You're a team. So, and I think that's ultimately w- what people responded to. And I still hear today that, that the warmth that people who, who enjoyed Mad About You is A, they related to it and they saw themselves in it and we would try to be very realistic. But at the core, you're watching a couple who is clearly well-intended. They're trying to not let the normal things that come up kill their romance and uh and it takes elbow grease it takes vigilance and and uh you know and they never really stopped so that was a, a rich thing and i think you know even in my stand up the things that irritate me are only cuz they're on on the way to what would have been a higher goal i really <laughs> would like to be a better person but man that guy is irritating me
0: i think the reason and i don't like the way i handled it <laughs> I think the reason Mad About You in particular is a romance and not a, not a family comedy, a traditional family sitcom, um, is that ultimately every episode is about them wanting to be in this relationship and wanting to have love well, rather than. You know the kind of well-worn grooves of a traditional family sitcom, which are about everyone is in this position. Like it's it's a it, which is great; it can be really hilarious. But you know, often there those those shows are about kind of reenacting a ritual conflict. Yeah, um, we worked about Character types. Yes,
3: and we worked uh, we worked diligently to avoid. The well-worn grooves, you know, and sometimes we'd write it and we'd go, "Yeah, that's a good laugh," but yeah, I don't like what it says about him. I don't like what it says about her. And and you know, I I think the, there are a bunch of reasons that the show succeeded. One, you know, and let's not, and not bury the lead there. You know, the, the spectacular talents of Helen Hunt, who was a great actress and really funny, really deeply f- smart and funny. And the other one of the other things that we uh, strived, strove, striven, st- uh, stripped, stripped to do was we didn't make him always the nut and her always the oh, Rob, you know, or, or vice versa, and it was alternating and sometimes in the same episode in the same scene. It's like okay, here's his little bag of craziness and here's her little buttons, and you try and alternate.
0: <laughs> let's let's hear a scene from Mad About You, the sitcom that my guest Paul Reiser co-created. Um, This is from the first season of the show. Jamie, which is Helen Hunt's character, is asking uh, Paul, who's Paul Reiser's character, if she's seen her missing sock.
2: Have you seen my other sock?
1: What does it look like?
2: Remarkably like this one. It's gone. It's missing.
1: Well, it's a sock. Where could it go? To the kitchen. Very often they get hungry.
2: Look everywhere else. Check the cupboards.
1: For your sock?
2: Yes, I'm looking for a
0: sock. You figured out the game. Now help me play.
1: (laughs) Here's a thought. Put on another pair of socks.
0: These are my lucky socks.
1: Well, it looks like your luck has changed, babe.
0: I think that, um, you know, the 90s were such uh, an interesting transitional period for the sitcom as a form where you went from, um, you know, kind of the... Apotheos- the apotheosis of how many great jokes can we put in a show sitcoms like Cheers, um, which I think is probably the, the last truly great how many great jokes can we put in a show sitcom um, with a thousand, you know, uh, a, a cast of a thousand brilliant uh, character actors doing a hilarious thing and you love them all. And, you know, it's your family and they everyone caps everyone else's joke and. Um, and the other, the other shows that I think of that I loved, and I was when Mad About You came on TV, I was uh, a pre-adolescent, and when it was done, I was a teen. Oh, really? And you were watching it then? Yeah, sure. Really? I mean, you was just what I didn't have cable. <laughs> I had no choice. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did enjoy it, but like if I if I watch Seinfeld now, what Seinfeld did is they took a pretty straightforward sitcom formula and like operatized it right yes. like took the smallest possible stakes and expanded them into the largest possible stakes just took the dumbest thing in the world a phrase a you know a tiny idea and just e- exploded it into the most important thing in the world until it's the silliest <laughs> opera you could imagine and i you know in the 90s i really loved News radio, which, as I watch it now, is a really traditional yeah. sitcom in a lot of ways. That is just a, a little sillier and with better jokes than most, you know. And the thing that's interesting to me about Mad About You is, I feel like the innovation of the form is you. You watch the show now, twenty five years later, and it feels like a sitcom in a lot of ways. I mean, you you were saying like it feels a little sitcomy, just jokey, you know. But there. The emotional stakes are not abstract with your two lead characters. Like those two lead characters are having a relationship that feels real in a way that most sitcoms don't have. And that
3: was the only uh, um, uh, 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 intention. You know, the kickoff was... You know, because I was approached at the time by like, go write us, you know, come up with a show for yourself. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do a sitcom. I thought, well, if I did, it would only want to I would want to do it about the stuff that I was doing in my act, which was relationship stuff. And that I found that interesting. And and, you know, sometimes you just stumble into something. You go, yeah, this is feeling I'm getting bigger laughs for a reason. This is coming from an organic place. So I'm going to do. A bit, and I and this is probably true for everybody. If you do a bit about real people and relationships and and your wife or your kid or, it's going to be funnier than the best, you know, traffic joke or boy, L. A. is different than New York, which is the, the the, the trope of forty years ago. But um, yeah, we, we it was always about what's, um, it's, always what's it's always the trope. Yeah. It's always the trope. But what? But it's interesting. You know, we. we I mean, I'm not. I actually love jokes, like really, you know, story jokes, and I love hearing them and I love telling them. I, but I never write that way, and um, and we would, and if something found uh, sounded too jokey, we would either lose it or find another way to to leaven it that it didn't sound. You know, in bad television, some of the people would just throw funny lines, and the other person would. They, it would land on them, and the audience would laugh, and they would just have to sit there with, and then, and they'd wait, and then they'd throw another one back. But in real life, if somebody said that to you, you'd go, "Hey, pal, you know, like it hurts." So, like, well, let's write that. Like, what are you doing? Why would you say that? And, 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 but having said that, I've, I've watched some old <laughs> mad about Yous and, and I think, oh my goodness, I forgot how funny they were. They were I mean, it's not; it, it was never. <laughs> we wanted to always be funny, but it was at the core. It was about something that was important. But, um. You know, I think certainly, well, even in the beginning of Mad About You, but certainly towards the end, some of our biggest laughs that uh, I was most proud of were silent. They were on a look because, you know, think of all in the family. You know, Edith would say something and Archie would look at her and you know because you've watched 100 episodes, oh, you know what he's thinking and you know what he's going to say. And in our show, in Mad About You, it was, it was that... But it was also we were rooting as like, oh, if the husband says that, you know the wife is getting ready to say the next thing. And uh, those silences. We had we had a great run where we, were, we would go to therapy. We'd go to couples therapy. And Mo Gaffney, who was terrifically funny, was our therapist. And it was this great triangle of comedy where she would say something and one of us would, well, yeah, and respond to it. And that would, by definition, be burying the other one. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes Paul does this and you just... I would look at her like whoa whoa and like and now and then and then the look would get the laugh or I would say something and Helen would just go really you're you're going that's what you're going to say it's like it's not a joke but it's funny because we're taking the ride with these people and we know what's going on in their lives
0: More with Paul Reiser after a quick break when we return what do you do when you have a show like Matt About You behind you and you're kind of set for life financially If you're Paul Reiser you try and work up a tight 15 at the comedy store. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional stage stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with Paul Reiser in a second. But first, another new culture show here at Maximum Fun. It's called Switchblade Sisters. It's hosted by April Wolf. She's the chief film critic at L.A. Weekly, a really brilliant critic. Every week, she talks to a different female filmmaker about their favorite genre movie. Uh, We're talking about horror, sci-fi, fantasy action exploitation she tells me there's something called bizarro everything in between the first episode is a past bullseye guest emily gordon who co-wrote the big sick comedy that was in theaters recently she talks about the horror western bone tomahawk if you like bullseye you'll really dig switchblade sisters the first episode's out now go subscribe open up your favorite podcasting app search for switchblade sisters You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Paul Reiser. He created the brand-new comedy show There's Johnny, which premieres this week on Hulu. You know, to have an extraordinarily successful network sitcom, which you did, you were both the star of it and the co-creator. You make a nearly infinite amount of money, and so you are then freed of the thing that drives a lot of us in our work, which is a continuing terror that of penury, you know, that yeah, we're, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, we're yeah. going to be broke or something. Right. Yeah. And so did you then come to a part in your life where you had to decide, like, wait, now I have to decide what I want to do. Uh,
3: well, it's funny. That was the gist of, of my, my short lived show, uh, uh <laughs> the Paul Reiser show. So, uh, I had a really big hit show, and I made you know a very comfortable amount of money that I don't have to worry about that and and the log line that I said accidentally, which became the pitch was when you've when you realize you've gotten everything you've ever wanted in life and you're not dead yet, <laughs> like nah, <laughs> oh, I didn't time this well because you want you wanna get there right at the end ta da like wow, well, I'm still relatively young and healthy what what's what's act two and so that was so I became my name on the show was me. And I was writing what was happening for me at the time, which was all my male friends were not of my
0: choosing. So when that didn't work, I mean, they aired two episodes. They aired two. We made seven. Yeah. So when that wasn't the I'm sure that wasn't what you had hoped for the show. No, I said two and out. Okay. I said, <laughs> I said, I said, the last five I'm going to
3: shoot. But for God's sake, don't air them.
0: When that, maybe that was my mistake. When that didn't work, did you have to like? Did you have to take another reconsideration? Because it see it feels like in the that was what six or seven years ago. Yeah, something. maybe. And it seems like in the last three or so years, you've worked a three or four years. You've worked a lot as an actor. Yeah. Um, you
3: know, uh, at the time, what I did is interesting, and I can't quite get up high enough to see uh the 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 forces at play here but at the time I said you know what I I I don't want to have another pitch meeting I don't want to I don't want to sell anything it's just too irritating and and I just said I'm going to go back into the clubs and do stand up because I had always meant to do that well when mad about you started I just got busy and I didn't do stand up and and I didn't do it for all the time of mad about you. So now it's seven years. Then I was home for a while. So now it's 10, 12, 15 years. I went, oh my goodness. I haven't really been out there as a stand-up. It was always my goal, but I, I just kept waiting for a right time. I went, well, just do it. And so, in fact, I did it just as like going for a walk. It's like, you know, I got to clear my head. I want to do this. And it wasn't a career thing, but the irony was I spent about a year just getting my muscle back because it had really gone lax. And I started feeling confident. Like, oh, this is good. And I started to book some dates and I go out on the road. And literally when I did that, these other uh, lovely jobs, uh, acting jobs came in sort of cosmically uh, synchronicity wise. They were uh, inexplicable because it wasn't like we saw him on stage and he'd be funny. There was no connection. I was off the map. But something happened. The minute I sort of shook off the dust and started doing what I wanted to do things sort of like the universe opened up in this strange way and and yes i had this lucky uh fortunate very fortunate um position where i didn't have to do anything and i you know so like i only went where
0: there was something appealing well paul i we've run out the clock i appreciate you taking i got this more stories i got
3: more hey 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 where are they grabbing me <laughs> uh yeah it's embarrassing how readily i can talk about myself
0: And at home, I can't do this. That's why
3: I have to come here and talk to you. You should
0: become a stand-up comedian.
3: Yeah. We're in a little booth that people can't see. We're in a booth that's... Six feet by six feet. It's like Guantanamo, but not quite as nice.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it, and at this point, it's getting pretty Cool Hand Luke in here. Like the temperature is—it's it's temperature eat, is rising. And also, I'm
3: eating twenty-four hard-boiled eggs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> in
3: case you're wondering what that odor was. Um, yeah, man, a pleasure. Thank you for for you know for knowing. And sometimes you meet people and they go, "I've never seen that show. What is it about?" I go, oh, "All right." But thank you for your uh, your literacy in the world of moi.
0: Paul Reiser, everybody. There's Johnny premieres on Hulu Thursday, November 16th. You can check it out there. Also, Paul is terrific in Red Oaks, a kind of of coming-of-age comedy that's on Amazon. I I really like that one. Uh, Season three of that show just premiered. And you can find him on Stranger Things, portraying a character that apparently in the script was originally called Dr. Paul Reiser. That was before they cast him. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a little culture recommendation from me. Call it the outshot. So I have three kids. The oldest one is six. The youngest one just started scooting across the floor. And so I have a house that is full of picture books. Some of them may be structural at this point. And I have to be frank with you. I am not that nuts about most picture books. I mean, the truth is that kids don't care. Kids will swallow just about anything, (laughs) entertainment-wise. They haven't seen anything, so they don't know any of the moves. Give them a little action, maybe something cute, you're good to go. They'll like it. No cliché is too clichéd. But if you're a parent, when you bring home a book, it means you are going to read it a thousand times, no matter what, even if it's their least favorite. So there's really got to be something to it. William Steig and Maurice Sendak, deliver pretty consistently. But beyond that, the pickings get real thin real quick if you're looking for something toothsome. In my house, one book is a real favorite. It's the one that we buy for other kids' birthdays. We grab it anytime we can when it's time to read out loud. It's a real gem. It's called Who Needs Donuts, written and illustrated by Mark Allen Stamati. It's about a kid in a cowboy suit. Who's bored with his family, so he hitches up his wagon and heads for the city because he wants donuts. The pictures in the book are these strange, dense black and white cartoons. Every page is overflowing. With oddness. On the streets of this city, which seems like it's probably New York, are, are pigeons with horse heads and wingtip shoes. Every inch of every building wall is covered in bricks and oddly canted windows and people who are up to something. There are dogs standing on people's heads, animals smoking pipes, wearing top hats. It's, it's just spectacular. And then in the middle of it all, there is this kid in a cowboy hat riding a tricycle with a horse's head down Main Street. It's that feeling of freedom that you long for as a kid, the kind of wildness. But it's also the counter to that feeling, the the longing for comfort, both of those at the same time. So the boy meets this lumpy kind of maniacal man named Mr. Bickford, who loves collecting donuts just as much as he does. And they team up. And and at first, it's just pure joy. I mean, they've got wagons of donuts, towers of donuts, a warehouse filled with a sea of donuts. And on their rounds one day, They cross paths with this old woman who says something that catches them short. Who needs donuts, she asks. Who needs donuts when you've got love? It's a passing moment, but it becomes a turning point. When Mr. Bickford finds love with a pretzel collector whose name is Pretzel Annie, he gets out of the donut game. His donuts go to the boy, But the kid's starting to wonder, are donuts really what matters? One day, a rhinoceros goes wild in a coffee factory, and the coffee starts to fill up the below-ground apartment next door. It belongs to the old woman. She doesn't know how to swim. The boy swoops in with his donuts, dumps a huge pile in through a street-level window, and they soak up the coffee. The woman's life is saved. The boy is a hero, but he's realized he doesn't need donuts. He needs something else. So he packs up his gear, and he goes home to his family in a tree-lined street not half as exciting as the donut madness in the city. But who needs donuts? When you've got love, that's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week we saw someone push a shopping cart into the lake. Shopping carts sink. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Thanks to Jesus Ambrosio and Shara Morris for their help this week. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews with you there and lots of thrilling discussion like this week, an extensive discussion of songs from the late 90s and early 2000s, rock songs, where the only drum beat was someone uh, clicking the rim of a snare drum on uh, the one, two, three and four. Like, tuck, 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 tuck. Like Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins and that one Bare Naked lady song and a weirdly huge number of songs where the drummer basically doesn't do anything the entire time. Anyway, Bullseye on Facebook. You can also find us on YouTube where you can grab any of our past interviews. Just search YouTube for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.